ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Andrei Kaplan, a postgraduate in Slavic studies, returns to his native-born Moscow to take care of his ailing grandmother. There was not much left for him in New York, except an ex-girlfriend and no academic job prospects anyways. Perhaps Moscow, at the height of Putinism, will offer him a chance to pull his life together. This is the basic premise of Keith Gesson's new novel, A Terrible Country. Keith and I talk about the novel, The Russian Left, and what his story about Andrei Kaplan tries to say about Russia in the mid-2000s. We also discuss Keith's recent article on America's Russia hands, and why it's so hard to break the dominant American discourse about Russia. Keith Gesson is a journalist, novelist, editor, and translator. He's the founding editor of N Plus One, and the translator of Kirill Medvedev's It's No Good, and Svetlana Alexeyevich's Voices from Chernobyl. He's also written for The New Yorker, The London Review of Books, and many other publications between teaching journalism at Columbia University. He's the author of All the Sad Young Literary Men, and his new novel is A Terrible Country, published by Viking. Here's Keith Gesson. So your novel, A Terrible Country, is about Andre, a Russian-American graduate student in Slavic studies at an unstated university, and he moves to Moscow to take care of his ailing grandmother. Um, so what inspired you to write this novel, since you're mostly known for journalism? Uh, yeah, I mean, a couple of things, I guess. You know, one was I I had a sort of similar experience to Andre's. I, I actually, after my first novel came out, all the sad young literary men. Um, I moved to Moscow to take care of my grandmother and, um, you know, and I spent a year there and, and it wasn't my first long trip to, to Moscow. And the experience that I had before, which was that it, it, you know, it, 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 when you go to Russia or Moscow for a week or, you know, even a month, it's just kind of a, you know, fascinating and, difficult, frustrating, but mostly just, uh, lots of fun. Right. But when you're actually, when you're actually living there for a period of time, it, it's, um, you really have to kind of deal with all the frustration and difficulty of, um, of life there. Right. Which is, which is significant. And, um, and then, but then you sort of become accustomed to it and, and, uh, and, you know, partly because just partly because of the way people are over there and partly I think because of how, um, how hard it is, you know, just, just kind of day to day to get stuff done. Also, I don't know, for me, I, I, I uh, it's always been a, a kind of situation where I've been removed a bit from my kind of usual context 
and you know my usual friends. And so you end up forming these very kind of powerful relationships with people, and then you leave, right? And so I had so I had this you know experience of of being in in Moscow for a year and and mostly doing as you said mostly doing journalism, um, and then I had to leave very suddenly and. It was just, uh, I found that to be a real um, kind of a shock and and not the, you know, and, and I feel like many listeners of the podcast will, you know, many people who have gone over there to, to do academic work or journalistic work uh, for any period of time, you know, I, I feel like I've had a similar experience. So I wanted to kind of get that down and in, into writing somehow. And it felt like a, a novel was was the way to do it. Um, and you know, I, I'd sort of I'd read many years ago. I read The Cossacks uh, by Tolstoy. I don't know if you I don't know if you know it. Um, early Tolstoy novel where he, um, you know, the Tolstoy young Tolstoyan character goes to a Cossack village and you know really kind of um, falls in love with it and wants to stay and then has to leave very suddenly. And that book, I, I thought that was a great uh, short novel, and I thought I could do something like that. Um, this kind of different kind of situation. Um, so that was the kind of personal background to it. I, I also had, I guess, I guess, a you know, a, a motivation that, a little more abstract and theoretical, um, but related to kind of my journalistic and sort of translation work, and which was that I'd been doing this for a while, and I just felt like I wasn't making a lot of headway <laughs> in terms of just you know, not necessarily convincing people of, uh, of my perspective, but even just kind of getting them to understand what my perspective was. And, you know, and, and so, you know, I've, I've written things for, for various magazines and, um, they tend to get kind of pulled into the general stream of other stuff that's, um, coming out and and kind of you know assimilated very easily into the discourse, right? Um, and you know I did that Kirill Medvedev book, which I thought was was a you know going to be a kind of a powerful intervention into debates on Russia in the U.S. And I think for people who read it, uh, it was you know maybe uh, you know it was it was you know Kirill had a had a has a a very strong argument about the continuity of the Yeltsin and Putin regimes and, and, you know, uh, that, that really what's gone on in Russia over the last 25 years is best understood, um, in the kind of framework of capitalism, right? That this is a, a capitalist state, uh, and, and that's the first word that should, that should be used to describe it rather than, for example, totalitarian. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, so, um, and, and, you know, and, and that book, you know, but it was a book of poems and essays that were translated from Russian and, and, and um, it didn't seem to me to have uh, really kind of changed a lot of minds. Um, so I thought, well, what if you kind of embedded some of these ideas into a narrative that, that was, you know, you know, not, not, uh, you've read it, so it's not the most exciting <laughs> uh, book in, that's ever been written, but it's, you know, it's kind of readable and, and personable and yeah so i thought that might it might um get the message out a little bit more broad so basically it's kind of a a a different narrative intervention something you couldn't you could never represent a story like this say in a piece of work of journalism but 
in the story of this guy Andre and his and his transformation over time, like his his the way the person who arrives in Moscow it, to take care of his grandmother is not the same person he is at the end, but still there is a little bit of him there, like that that first person that arrives. Um, so just to who is this guy Andre? Like, how did you? What do you? How do you um, imagine him as the the carrier of your narrative? Well, as you said, he's—I mean—he's not actually a grad student. He's—he's—he's—he's uh, he's he's finished his dissertation, so he's in this sort of limbo, right? He's—he's he's, he's done a few postdoctoral fellowships, but he's kind of run out of places to go and can't get a job, right? So um, he's in this kind of academic purgatory, and uh, from which he may never emerge. You know, I mean, that's the—you know—and and, um, that does obviously happen to a lot of people. So, so in, he he goes to Russia. He he kind of knows a lot about it as a person who you know reads about it and um, uh, studies it. Um, you know, as a as an academic, um, he was born there, but left when he was little, um, as as I did also. Um, but he so he hasn't been there in a few years, right? And he he is unprepared. So he this is he comes there in two thousand eight, and he hasn't been there since two thousand. So that for me was enough time, you know, that seemed like a perhaps a plausible amount of time for a grad student who works on kind of, say, 19th century Russia uh, to be away from Russia, right? Um, it seemed like, uh, you know, just as, you know, any, any, any more than that would be implausible. <laughs> but um, it seemed like that was, you know, it could, it could happen that you would be studying Russia, but you wouldn't go there for, you know, a period of time. Um, and, you know, between 2000 and 2008, the country, you know, um, really gained a lot of wealth, right? So, um, you know, so Andre gets to experience this kind of shock of having uh, left a country that had just, you know, basically had a financial collapse, right, um, that really was doing badly economically and then shows up in 2008. You've had eight years of rapid economic growth all the oil money pouring into Moscow. Um, and, you know, this is not the Russia he had imagined. And I also wanted him, you know, and, and in a way, this is kind of, um, you know, my own story as a person who was a, you know, pretty kind of run of the mill, uh, liberal college student. Um, and when I first started going to Russia in the, in the mid nineties, and kind of saw what, what was happening there. And, and I thought, oh, uh, you know, uh, this is what this is actually what capitalism does <laughs> a country that can't defend itself. Um, and, you know, it, it took me many years to kind of really wrap my mind around it. Um, so but this is fiction. And so, you know, Andre goes through this process, um, you know, in a in six months. <laughs> Um, you know, partly because he's living with his grandmother and he um, is kind of noticing this stuff as he walks around, but he also just kind of looks at her life, right? Um, this person who uh, hated the communists, right? Hated the Soviet Union, wanted it to end. Um, uh, but now that it's over, has has basically lost everything. Um, you know, she, she lost her dacha in the nineties. She lost her life savings. All she has left is her apartment. Um, and this now is being threatened in, in a different way. Um, 
so and, and you know and she kind of exists in this in this kind of parallel universe of um the kind of little old ladies who make their way through moscow and you know pick out the vegetables that are underpriced um at the you know various little little stalls here and there um and and you know just kind of watching her uh navigate the city and and uh you know this 90 year old lady i i think you know gives him and kind of gives the book you know a, a kind of palpable sense of uh of the kind of people who uh didn't do that great in the post-soviet transition this is one of the things that i that kind of struck me and after you know reading the book um and it's really powerful in the beginning because the way you set it up, and that is you do show this Moscow of the, you know, mid 2000s that it has the, the bars, the clubs, all the hipster cafes. It has this class of young people who, you know, who work for these oil companies, um, who are drive fancy cars. You kind of point to a level of violence amongst that culture as well. And then you have these expats who are living next door to, uh, you know, and, and to Andre uh, in his brother's apartment, renting his brother's apartment. So you get that flavor as well. And they're going to all the clubs and things like this, too. But then as the narrative moves, you have his grandmother, as you mentioned, but also these these, uh, you know, college students that he begins to befriend. And they live a totally different life in the sense of in a way they are kind of losing out. They're the class of young people who are kind of losing out on the system. Um so talk about the, talk more about the way Moscow's landscape uh, plays out in the novel. I mean, one of the another thing that really struck me too is that Andre goes to this uh, this hipster uh, coffee shop all the time, which is right across the street from Lubyanka, the the secret police headquarters, and he finds this he finds this dichotomy really bizarre at first, and he can't wrap his head around it very well. Yeah, well, you know my. You know, my uh, my actual grandmother, who, with whom I actually lived, you know, did actually live down the street from Lubyanka. And, you know, the first time you walk by it, you know, it's the KGB. And the second time you walk by it, it's still the KGB. But the, you know, eighth or ninth time, you're just like, well, where's that, you know, where's there some Wi-Fi? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, are there any pastries left, right? Um, yeah, it, and it's, you know, it's an interesting, I mean, that's kind of what, Moscow's like, right? I mean, you, you, from afar, it's this place of horrors. Um, and then you get there and you, you, you know, and, um, you kind of have to live and, and, or the people who live there have to live, you know, and they have to go about their lives. Um, and, you know, and they, it's not that they've forgotten, uh, what happened, but they, you know, they got to get a coffee or they have to get some groceries. They have to pick up their kids from daycare. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, Moscow, the sort of, uh, the, you know, geography of any city is really interesting in, in America, um, you know, our cities basically in the 20th century, um, in the course of the 20th century became these kind of engines for separating blacks and whites. So, you know, American cities, I mean, that's the kind of, if you were coming from uh, another country, it would be the first thing you noticed um, about any American city, pretty much, right? Um, including New York. Uh, I mean, even New York, right? New York is a pretty, pretty, uh, you know, not so bad in, in those terms uh, compared to like Boston. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or Pittsburgh, <laughs> right? I have to say. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
whereas Moscow doesn't have that uh, kind of racial component. Um, I mean, I think you, you, you do now a bit more because you have these sort of uh, workers coming from Central Asia and they live, um, they kind of do the, the some of the kind of unpleasant work that Muscovites don't want to do. And then they live in, you know, dormitories and, you know, bad neighborhoods. Um, but, but it, the city was not really set up to segregate uh, racially. Um, and, you know, you, you had kind of, you've had sort of rapid, you know, post-Soviet gentrification, right? I mean, just standard process of people with money moving out people without money. Um, uh, in um, you know, in Russia, it happened uh, pretty violently, right? I mean, you had a lot of people who were just you know basically conned out of their apartments, sometimes uh, violently conned out of their apartments. Um, as we know that you know that this stuff goes on in the U.S. also, right? We know that um, in the run up to the financial crisis, a lot of people were being you know basically scammed out of their homes. Um, but you know, uh, in, in Moscow, it took place also, and in, in, you know, pretty, pretty vicious <laughs> ways. Um, so you know, in a way, the center of Moscow, you know, by the time this book is said in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, it's pretty, um, it's pretty, pretty cleared out of, um, you know, certainly old people, right? I mean, that's one of the one of the kind of striking things about. Um, these kind of Soviet cities is you, you sort of get on a bus um, and you look around and you're like, Oh, it's, it's me and you know, a bunch of people over 70 <laughs> and you know, they're the only ones who basically can't afford um, another way of getting around. Right? It's this terrible bus system. I, I, I'm, I'm told it's gotten better in Moscow in the last 10 years. I mean, the bus system has gotten better, but um, I don't know. I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, so the, the the sort of center of the city has been kind of cleared out of old people, and yet um, there's still some of them who are hanging on, right? And, and um, you know, so they have this valuable property, um, but they don't have any disposable income, um, and there's still a kind of world, you know, kind of um, small set of places where they can go um, to, you know, buy groceries. Uh, you know, they would never even, they would never, it would never occur to them in a million years to buy a $5 cappuccino. Right. Nor do <laughs> they seem to have a consciousness of the value of their property either. No, right. I mean, yes. Um, well, because what would they do if they, you know, it's not really a liquid asset, right? Like they, where would they go um, if they sold it? So, um, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, this is, this was something that I uh, found um, you know, a, a, a little bit, you know, right around, actually, you know, right around the time that the book is set where I had been going to, to, to Moscow over the years and, um, this right around, uh, 2005, 2006, 2007, um, you began to see a kind of younger generation, um, that was, you know, uh, coming up that had, that wasn't so starry-eyed about uh the so-called transition to capital and and they formed um some of them formed uh small you know leftist uh kind of groups um that one of which is sort of described in the book um and you know it, it, 
as I as I talk in the book, you know, some of that was, you know, if if if, if you kind of wonder, well, why did, um, you know, why did these young people end up moving left? And I think a lot of it was the experience of their parents um, in the transition, right? I mean, um, those whose parents did wonderfully well in the transition, they tend to be, um, you know, you're, you're more hipster, um, liberal, uh, or even pro-regime um, type of elements. And, and then there's a group of people whose parents didn't do as well and, and uh, you know, have begun to ask, well, what, was that fair, right? Let me, let me ask you about the, the, the representation of the left, because, you know, like in most of these stories that you find, whether journalistic, uh, mostly the journalistic ones, it, the, the backdrop is uh, like Russian liberals, mm-hmm. right? They, they, send, they tend to be the, the representation of the, the opposition to the system. And you have this small group of, of leftists who form this group October – um, and, you know, I'm certainly personally interested in the Russian left. And so what in your representation of them, what were you trying to to, to tell the reader about Russian leftists in, in addition to how or why they might have gone left? Um, I mean, I guess the first thing that I wanted to say was that they exist. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and and I and I think they're wonderful. Um I think I think they're right um, in their analysis of what's happening, you know, and and uh, you know, you know, and there there were versions of the book that were, um, you know, where the kind of opposition between the young liberals and the young leftists was dwelled on at much greater length, <laughs> um, and um, you know, then I I read it and I was like, oh, geez, you know, nobody really <laughs> cares that much, and it, you know, it's hard enough to kind of introduce. Uh, people to this world that they kind of country they they don't know much about. And then you're going to go on and on about the difference between, you know, this one group of liberals and, and, you know, this other group of leftists, that's a little, it's, it's cutting things a little too finely. (laughs) But so, but so yeah, so the liberals make a kind of brief appearance and then, you know, in the end, and it's, it's kind of better this way, like the, the leftists are kind of the heroes and, and they're at the center of, of the, of the book. Um, uh, and, and in a way that's nice, you, you don't actually need to go on and on about how the liberals are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Just say here, you know, here are my people, here are, um, these young socialists who are great. Um, you know, there, there is a kind of novelistic or, you know, I mean, there's a challenge in journalism too, of, of writing about people you admire. Right. Um, and, um, just not making it uh, mushy or kind of, you know, um, ridiculous. And I don't know. So, so they're presented as, you know, sort of, you know, not entirely kind of heroic and perfect beings. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of complicated, uh, you know, young people with their problems, but you know, they're the people that I, that I admire the most over there and, and listen to the most. One of the other things that strike me is this this constant reminder um, that Andre his his friends repeatedly remind him that he can leave right he's going to go back to America someday and there's there's a suspicion particularly when he starts using or observing his friends as an as an academic 
you know, subject. He becomes a sort of anthropologist who's using Russia to further his career. And I found this really striking, especially since at the end, you know, things work out for him academically and he, you know, he, he leaves Russia. And I, I, I felt that this was quite a, a provocative indictment of all of us in, in a way that all of us who, you know, use Russia and its people for, for our careers and, and places at places with, you know, nice lawns as, as Andre's girlfriend points out about the university he goes through to. So I thought I'd ask you about this. Are we all kind of implicated in a form of imperialism that we just don't want to admit when we're dealing with Russia? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, right. Aren't, aren't we? I mean, I, I, I actually agree with your indictment. That's why I think it was, it's really fascinating to think about. And it's almost like there's no, um, there's, there's no way to get out of it, right? I mean, it, it's a, uh, you know, I find, you know, whenever I, whenever I write something uh, journalistic, and you know, people, people about Russia, and they're like, oh, you wrote this critical thing about Russia, you know, are you in danger? <laughs> um, and it's just like, man, no, I'm certainly not <laughs> in, in Brooklyn, New York, in any danger. Um, they do not read, you know, the London Review of Books <laughs> very carefully uh, over, you know, at uh, – and, and, uh, but, yeah, I mean, and, and uh, you know, we, yeah, I mean, all of us, we go over there and, and with the best of intentions and then we, we – right with sympathy and but then in the end at the end of the day we go back um not everybody you know some people do stay right um yeah i mean and there's no kind of there's no way out of it uh in the end we're over here and they're over there do do you think that just being conscious of it is is the best we can do i mean it's probably not the best we can do but it's a uh, yeah it's a kind of it's a, you know, it's, that's a, it's good. <laughs> it's a good start. Right. And, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if, it's a hard, yeah. it's a hard question. It's a hard question to actually, I mean, this is why I say that, you know, just being conscious of it is the best we can do because it's kind of, you know, like you said, well, one alternative is to stay. Uh, and, but it's hard to get out of. I mean, even if you stay, you're still, you know, can always leave. Um, and it it but it's still something that I think in in our attempts to represent that place that we should certainly be conscious of in our efforts to represent it. I mean, it goes to I think it goes to a question of you know how much do we check our fetishism of Moscow and and Andre himself. I mean, your main character kind of goes. I saw at least my reading of it. He went through this transformation of like at, when he arrives, he very much is in this mode of his understanding of Russia comes from a certain fetishism that one can read in, in newspapers. I mean, even in Russian newspapers to a large extent. And then over time, he kind of confronts, you know, life, daily life as it is. And he seems to see it with a bit more clarity. Right. I mean, yes, he, he goes over there. And this is, I mean, I, I don't know if, if you share this, but whenever I go over there, I, you know, and I've spent, um, you know, I've gone over the, over there a lot, but you know, you, you spend, uh, the weeks in, in, in preparation kind of reading, you know, more intensely reading the, 
the news in Nova Gazeta, right? And you go over there, you're like, oh, gosh, am I going to get arrested? <laughs> right? This is Andre's kind of, um, you know, he, he's, he keeps thinking, am I going to, you know, am I going to get arrested when I show up? <laughs> have, have they read my, you know, uh, essay and <laughs> critica? <laughs> Right. Um, so and and yeah, and then um, he gradually realizes that's not that's not the real problem. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I I, I share that with him. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, and obviously, obviously, some work that foreign academics and journalists have done has been um, useful and and you know useful for Russians, right? It's been you know. We have more resources. We have more time. It doesn't take us three days to, you know, get our shoes fixed or whatever, right? It's it's just life is is a little simpler, and and um, you know that gives people who are working in the West, a, you know, um, a kind of advantage and and um, an ability to do uh, work that you know that can be useful to people over there. And, you know, and a lot of people have done that work. So, yeah, that's, that would be, that's not bad. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, I completely agree. I mean, it's no, it's not just to, to, to be, <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound weird to say, but to, to be conscious of one's imperialism doesn't necessarily mean the, the work you produce is, is useless, right? It, it, it's just, it's kind of a, it's a tension. Um, but, it, you know, sometimes tensions are, are some things you just have to deal with. Um, now, the the novel is called A Terrible Country, and Andre's grandmother repeatedly tells him this phrase. This is a terrible country. Is Russia a terrible country? I mean, yes. <laughs> um, is it, you know, I mean, um, I've, you know, since uh, for the past year and a half, when, or, you know, and, and more recently when kind of introducing the book to people, I find I have to clarify um that I don't mean the United States. Right. So, so, uh, you know, I think if, if, uh, a couple of years ago you had said, well, you know, America is a terrible country. People would have said, well, what do you mean? Now you can say America is a terrible country and everybody knows exactly what you mean. Right. <laughs> it's been, it's been quite clarifying. Right. In, in that regard. Um, so yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and I've had, you know, um, People from India, a, a, a young woman who read the book who was from India said, I, you know, I really liked your book. And I, I you know, I, I, I'm from a different terrible country. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you do, you, you kind of, um, turns out, you know, lots of countries are terrible in their own different ways. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, and it is supposed to be, I mean, you know, it's this terrible country that, um, you and I and many of the people we know, um, find really uh appealing and attractive and um heartbreaking and and uh we keep getting kind of sucked into it right for reasons that are that are still kind of un mysterious so it ha it certainly has a kind of magic uh it's not all terrible <laughs> yeah no no it's just it's just interesting that it's called that and 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 more what you mean by terrible Right. Or what, what his grandmother means by terrible. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, she, she means, no, she means, you know, awful, bad. <laughs> you, you should leave. But also, but also, um, you know, she, for her, you know, she did, she never left. Right. 
um, she has stayed. She's like, you know, and at, at a certain point she quotes the, this famous Sahmat of a line about, you know, я была с моим народом там, где мой народ к несчастью был, right? I, I was with my people where, you know, to their great misfortune they were, or where, wherever they were to their great misfortune, right? So, you know, Ahmadova who didn't emigrate and who, um, you know, uh, remained, you know, in the country throughout the war. You know, so so the grandmother, I mean, so I, I mean, there is a kind of, I don't know if it's irony exactly, but when she says it's a terrible country, but, but A, she has never left, B, um, her daughter, um, her only daughter who did leave went to America and died. Right. And, and the, the, you know, grandmother keeps saying this over and over again. And Andre doesn't, doesn't, you know, thinks this is kind of a, there isn't a causal relationship, um, between the two statements or the two parts of that statement. Right. Um, she went to America and she died. These are both true things, but there's no relationship he thinks. And then that, that at the end, what she meet, what she meant all that time was, um, that the sort of uh, um, healthcare screening in the U.S. was was not as good as it was in the Soviet Union, and that's why she died. Um, so you know, so for her, America actually is a place of death. Um, so you know, so it's complex. It's 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 complicated. And I hope somebody who's read the book <laughs> um, doesn't doesn't uh, you know merely think it's a terrible country and everybody should leave. So I, I wanted to also talk, since I have you, talk about this article you wrote in the New York Times Magazine um, that got a lot of buzz and got some reactions from some people. The, the article is The Quiet Americans Behind the U.S.-Russia in Broglio. Um, how does your your Russia in the novel compare to the Russia of your interlocutors in your article? I was very curious, you know, I, I kind of wanted to write that article and, and talk to the people who made U.S. policy toward Russia uh, over the last few decades um, and just get a sense of who these people were and kind of what they're what they were thinking. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I found it really fascinating. I mean, a lot of them came out of academia, right? Got PhDs in history and then kind of went into the government. Um, so, uh, you know, were people with very recognizable kind of backgrounds to me. Uh, and then others were, were people who sort of got in the game during the Soviet era um, when the Soviet Union was our great enemy. So if you wanted to slay the great enemy, that's what you did. You went and worked on Russia stuff. And, you know, and there are different versions of that, right? Like there are people who, like Victoria Newland, who clearly, you know, uh, was, was pretty hawkish on Russia from the very beginning. And someone like Strobe Talbot, who clearly had a more desire to understand and, and you know, work with Russia in some productive way. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, compared to, I mean, compared to most of us who work on Russia, these folks actually don't spend a ton of time in Russia, right? I mean, they are, Russia to them is a problem to be solved rather than a place to go and kind of study and experience. Um, that was, I mean, and, and uh, they're, they're very knowledgeable, but it's definitely a different way of looking at Russia. And yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't know if that is at the root of, I mean, you know, certainly somebody like um, Tom Graham, who 
um, is a really, really knowledgeable person and, and who's um, thinking on Russia, you know, I agree with a lot of it. Uh, I mean, he kind of comes from the, the right. There's a kind of, you know, this kind of Republican reason, um, which if and then there's a kind of, you know, uh, as I tried to sort of get at in the, in the piece, though, though they make it very hard for you because all these people kind of don't um, think of it in partisan terms. So they, they, they're very uncomfortable talking about it that way. But, you know, yeah, so like there is this kind of uh, right realism that, you know, converges with sort of uh, more, I guess, left realism. Uh, but anyway, but Tom Graham was somebody who said, you know, I, I felt he's, you know, he did a few stints at the embassy and was working um, in the political section, which meant that he was kind of tasked with going out into Russia and talking to people. And he, you know, really felt like that had given him a, a very uh, different uh, perspective than most of the people that he was talking to in Washington, right? That just being, that spending time in Russia, that really spending time in Russia talking to Russians um, set him apart from a lot of other people. And, you know, and that's uh, kind of crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And disturbing you if you that, think about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you think it would be the very first thing that any anybody would do. But that's not how it works, right? That's not how the government works. It, it, one of the things you write, and this is kind of your main question of the article, is that you said the abiding mystery of American policy towards Russia over the last 25 years can be put this way. Each administration has come into office with a stated commitment to improving relations with its former Cold War adversary, and each has failed remarkably in, has failed in remarkably similar ways. And, you know, and this was in some of the responses to your article. I mean, some people were like, well, it's because of the Russians. And then some other people were kind of more balanced and they were like, well, it's both sides. Um, but I think, and it's interesting that I found this interesting in the responses that this was missed. But you, you were, to me, you're saying something else. And that is the problem lies in our very understanding and discourse about Russia. And and you just actually said it a, a few minutes ago, and that is people who see Russia as a problem to be solved versus someone who sees Russia as an as a thing to be represented, let's say, in lack of a better term. So what what is is the problem that how we understand and the discourse we use to even speak about it? I don't know. I mean, I I, I want to say that's a bit above my pay grade. <laughs> You know, um, I, you know, I mean, it does occur to me that, um, you know, just as we kind of slide into hell, right? I mean, further, it's just getting, you know, the, the relationship is getting worse and worse, right? And, and you know, certainly, you can certainly read, you know, if you, I've been skeptical of the effect that the Russia interference, right? Could actually, I mean, did it did it really? Okay, maybe maybe ten thousand votes in Michigan, right? Um, you know, and maybe whatever whatever it was, twenty thousand votes in Wisconsin. I mean, these are these are such small numbers of votes, but you know, Pen the Pennsylvania gap was was it seventy uh, thousand? I think. So that seems. Did the Russians really move that many votes? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. But but sorry. Long story short, I mean, you can certainly read. Trump as a result of 
if if you want to uh, give the Russians credit for having you know moved the needle a, a little bit, um, you know uh, Trump as a kind of end result of the decline in relations, right? Um, and you know I just I, like in the kind of slightly longer historical perspective, if you look back to you know ninety one, right, or the late eighties, uh, the fat you know the entire post war period had been kind of uh, organized around, um, you know, containing and defeating the Soviet Union. Uh, and then it finally happened. So this, this you know, opportunity to really uh, rearrange and, and change the kind of way that the world worked. Um, and it didn't, and the sort of, it didn't happen, right? It, we, we failed. And, and um, I, I find it really, I find it really disturbing um, when, you know, the people who were, and, and, you know, not all of them are like this, but the people who, um, were in the, in the mix, who were in the government working on this stuff, um, and who say it was all the Russians fault. I find that to be a, a kind of striking lack of self, uh, ability to sort of reflect on, on your own, uh, actions, you know, and, 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 and it was, it was, you know, and it was pretty striking just talking to people how, you know, a lot of, you know, I would say a good half of the people I talked to were, were very thoughtful and um, kind of were doing a lot of soul searching about what had happened. Um, and then, but a, a, a good half were, were just very mad at the Russians and blamed everything on Russia. Um, so, yeah, so it's this kind of historical tragedy you know, whether a different kind of discourse about Russia, I mean, that's, you, uh, you, 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 you need to tell me. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the argument, right? I mean, you, you, you wrote a, a response that said that there was a period where, um, us, the U S did not think of Russia as a, as a place to be converted. What would that look like? I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I think, uh, this this is why I I mean I'll just tell you the the personal story behind this um, and this kind of thinking about this a lot. Um, I I actually taught a class uh, last year on U.S. Russia relations, and the course was to be on the Cold War. And I'm like I started thinking about this, and I'm like, why do all of these classes on U.S. Russia relations start in nineteen in the you know with the Cold War or you know, the latest they go is 1917, right? The earliest they go is 1917. So I started to look and say, okay, well, what, what were U.S.-Russia relations in the 19th century, right? Um, and what can we learn by the fact that both of these countries ha have histories of human bondage? Both of these countries have histories of internal colonization, dealing with indigenous groups and peoples and cultures you know, how does this interesting parallel development in, in some ways, even though they have completely different political systems, um, can teach us about how they understood each other? And to my surprise, I found that and, – and so few books are actually written on this. Um, I, I highly recommend anyone to read Norman Saul's histories. It's pretty much the only histories of the 19th century of U.S.-Russia relations that are really detailed. And I was struck by – you know, things that you can't even imagine today, like, for example, um, the Russian Navy marching down Broadway in New York after the Civil War. You know, the, um, these, the correspondence between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander the First. 
um the you know like really interesting moments um and and it to me it seems that hi- this history has been either ignored or worse forgotten and perhaps it's something to think about because Russia today is no more despotic than the Russia of the 19th century right so and think about well how did this turn right what when did this when did the relationship begin to pivot and when did the united states begin to see russia differently and by the his, by what historians have written it seems that in the 1880s um there was a shift and the question is well what brought about that shift but but nevertheless i think that you know uh, perhaps a, a, a thinking about at least or at least becoming knowledgeable of that 19th century history might be a way to give us a, a way out. Um, now, what that way out is, I don't know at this point, but I, it's worth investigating. I mean, we we have nothing else to lose. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess for me, the 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 kind of wisest people in the piece were the ones who, you know, like Olga Olaker. Who are really thinking about? Well, you know, it's it's not so much about Russia; it's about us. And thinking about, you know, um, kind of, you know, she didn't use the word empire. You're not you're not supposed to say empire, <laughs> but um, but you know, dismantling the empire. That's that's the project. Um, and um, so, you know, doing it in a in a way that's, I guess, responsible. Um, you know, one of the things that I kind of thought a lot about was, you know, yeah, Trump is awful, um, but what what would have happened if Bernie had been elected, um, as he surely would have been? <laughs> uh, you know, if he had gotten out of the primary. But, you know, I, I feel like the same thing, actually. Uh, you know, if, if, if Bernie had showed up and said, we need to dismantle the empire, um, I think he would have been stymied by the kind of, you know, a, a, a lack of, in a way, a kind of lack of personnel in the U.S. government who would be sort of on board with that project. And, and this goes to another question I have. You know, one of the moments um, that stands out in your, your article is that you write that the small contingent of dissidents was keeping a low profile. I asked one of them if he felt lonely. And this person said, I do feel lonely, he said, but I am not alone. It's just that we have to speak more quietly. Now, what do you think he meant meant by saying we we have to speak more quietly? Oh, I I think he just I mean they you know I I have to say I was coming from the kind of literary world right as <laughs> sort of literary journalistic world that as, as I do where people are quite harsh to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was surprised at, at how sensitive. <laughs> Um, these uh, young souls in Washington were about sort of criticism that they received. But, you know, I th- I, it, is a, it is a kind of place where uh, there's kind of only one game in town, which is the government. And if you um, are too outspoken, you know, and you kind of get too, too far ahead of, of the curve on certain things, uh, you, that will jeopardize your ability to, to, to be hired by the government in the future. So that, I think that really kind of limits the, you know, the kind of range of, of discourse. 
that goes on. You know, you're, you're not, it's not a, a place where you're supposed to float wacky ideas <laughs> just to see, you know, just to see what people think because, you know, they will be read back to you at your information here. But at the same time, you, 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 you pointed to in your article, there was a moment, I forget when it was, maybe in the 1990s of a very wacky idea put forward to justify NATO expansion. And that was, well, if we don't expand NATO, Poland is going to get nukes. And that report that was written by a RAND, a RAND researcher was like thrown in the garbage. But at this, at the same time, people started to, some people in the government started to take it seriously at some point. No? Yes. Well, that's, I mean, that's the, I mean, this is another kind of fascinating question is, you know, how does, okay, so you have this kind of, everybody acknowledges that there's a kind of group think, right? And, uh, I think Ben Rhodes in the Obama administration, you, you know, um, they were somewhat contemptuous of the foreign policy establishment. They called it the blob, right? Uh, okay, so everybody knows about the blob, but how do you change the thinking of the blob? Uh, and here, I mean, I, I found it very interesting. You talk to think, think tank people and they say, oh, you know, we have no effect on anything, right? We just... We just write these, you know, boring papers. Uh, it's just just to kind of <laughs> keep our jobs. Uh, and, you know, I think they undersell the, their effects, right? I mean, yeah, when, when, basically when you're – but, yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, so the RAND, the RAND paper on NATO expansion is kind of a famous paper, right? Um, like Daniel Dresner, right, who's a kind of historian of – um, some of these things, right? Uh, you know, kind of cites it as a, as as one of the examples of a think tank actually having an effect on policy. When I talk to the remaining uh, living author, uh, Richard Kugler, um, he said, "Oh, you know, um, he didn't actually remember the <laughs> the negative stuff. He just remembered that you know people at Foreign Affairs they sent the Foreign Affairs a, a, a version of." of their piece and foreign affairs became very excited. Right. Uh, Richard Luger, Senator Luger, um, became very excited. Right. Um, and of course, Dan Freed, uh, for, at the national security council became very excited. So there was this kind of hunger for this idea. Um, and it, you know, it, it fell on very receptive ears. Um, uh, and you know, with Dan Freed, Dan Freed described it as, you know, he said, Oh my God, this is so great. And you guys have, have written it out in such detail, um, you know, that we could not have done here because we're so busy. <laughs> so that was kind of the function of, you know, of the think tank in that instance was to sort of have an idea that everybody liked and then to kind of really flesh it out. But, but you do need a kind of political atmosphere where an idea uh, that is outside the mainstream would, outside the foreign policy consensus mainstream, you know, would fall on um, kind of willing would find a willing audience. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how you, I don't know how you create that willing audience. Um, I don't know how you create that political atmosphere, but I think, you know, writing articles in, uh, you know, I, I don't mean the New York times magazine. I don't think that's how you do it. Um, I, no, I, I think in small magazines and kind of having these discussions, right. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think if you, one of the more de kind of depressing conversations I had was with a, sort of self-identified leftist who worked on foreign policy. He told me that um, basically all the money that foundations and all these think tanks are basically paid for by foundations. The foundations can be somewhat fickle, right? They kind of, 
you know, rearrange, you know, they kind of change their priorities year to year. Uh, and he said, basically, after Obama was elected, all the foundation money left kind of leftist oriented foreign policy um, because everybody because they thought, well, Obama is a responsible. Right. We won. Yeah, we won. And we should work on other things like, you know, um, whatever, climate change. Right. You know, also obviously a worthy, um, you know, uh, subject. Right. But so, yeah. And, and you know, there, if you look around, there's really no. You know, you have these kind of self-identified progressive um, uh, sort of domestic policy think tanks like the Roosevelt Institute. There is no foreign policy equivalent of that. No, that that article you published in N Plus One by Assad Haider was based, I think it was Assad Haider, right? Uh, who had the left, the missing left foreign policy. It might have been Aziz Rana. Aziz Rana, yeah. It was Aziz Rana, sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, I think that spoke directly to this problem. So, and finally, um, you know, taking, I, 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 and maybe I'm pushing things, but I, I see your novel and your article as part of a single work and, and, and it certainly represents, uh, your, your overarching thinking and writing about Russia that you've been doing for a long time and trying to push. So taking, taking both of these things that you've done recently, what would you like readers to take from them about Russia? You know, I mean, we are clearly, you know, and, and you and I talked, um, I think it was 2014, right? That was, uh, you know, the beginning of this period of kind of heightened attention, let's say, toward Russia, um, but really, his, you know, hysteria. Um, and obviously, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, you know, where people think that Russia is this purely malevolent force um that russia is um basically synonymous with one person putin and you know and uh, vladimir putin is just this sort of james bond villain and uh that's kind of what i feel like that's what people know <laughs> and i don't know you know and and um you certainly don't want to be you know, and this is why I love the Russian left, right? You you, you don't hear them defending Putin. Um, and, you know, and they, um, you know, when you, when you talk to them about, you know, imperialism, they say, well, we, you know, uh, Russia is an imperial state that in, invaded Ukraine and seized Crimea. That was an imperialist action. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, and, and, uh, one does find oneself kind of journalistically almost, almost kind of, you almost can't get out of this loop of not, not defending Putin, but kind of at least trying to soften some of the rhetoric around Putin, um, which is, you know, really, a really no fun. And, and yeah, and like, and not, you know, I'm okay. And, you know, and, and in a way it's kind of necessary, right? I think it's not, it's not necessarily a mistake to, you know, when, when people say Putin sits there and uh, draws up lists of people he wants killed. Um, I think it's useful to push back on that. But uh, I mean, what I think, what I think a kind of more, uh, what I think a novel could do, I hope. Right. Um, and, and kind of more sort of longer narrative uh, journalism is, is to just give some sense of, 
how complicated a place it is, right? And there are people there who who hate Putin, you know, and who actually hate them, hate him in a way that you might not uh, have expected, right? From um, from a, a leftist perspective, um, and that it's you know it's a you know pretty complex, pretty dynamic society, you know, where people build lives. Um, that aren't entirely determined by um, the you know one man sitting in the Kremlin. Yeah, it's just a it's just a complicated place with a lot of people living in it. I mean, it's ridiculous to say, right? It's just a it's banal. I mean, it's a it's a terrible country in this, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, Keith. Uh, thank you. That was Keith Gessen, journalist, novelist, editor, and translator. He's the founding editor of N Plus One and the translator of Kirill Medvedev's It's No Good and Svetlana Alexeyevich's Voices from Chernobyl. He's written for The New Yorker, The London Review of Books, and many other publications between teaching journalism at Columbia University. He's the author of All the Sad Young Literary Men, and his new novel is A Terrible Country published by Viking. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Park the car at the side of the road. It's a very lonely, their only desire is to die But I'm afraid it doesn't make me smile I wish I could laugh But that joke isn't funny anymore It's too close to home and it's too near the bone Close to home and it's too near the bone.